0: So a question for you, what do Pope Francis, the healthcare workers who fought Ebola in Africa several years ago, Angela Merkel, Donald Trump, the silence breakers who spoke up about abuse, a group of journalists called the Guardians, several of whom lost their lives because of the stories that they were writing about, Greta Thunberg, then Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Elon Musk all have in common. Some of you, I think, nailed it. They have all appeared on the front cover of Time magazine as Time's Person of the Year. So nearly every U.S. president since FDR has appeared on the cover. People like Churchill, Queen Elizabeth, Jeff Bezos, and others have appeared on the cover. And These are people whom Time says... You are important. Albert Einstein uh, was declared by Time magazine as the person of the century. His work in science and physics has opened up so many doors for different projects and inventions along the way. Um, As we begin our study in the Gospel of Mark, we are going to be studying the most important person of all time, that is Jesus. At one level, Jesus is not impressive. He was born to a young woman in a stable setting and then placed in a manger. We know hardly anything about his childhood except that he showed an exceptional strength at understanding the Bible. At 30, he began a teaching ministry that attracted large crowds at times. Sometimes there were as many as 5,000 people, even more, who would listen to him. But he spent most of his time with 12 men who came from non-glamorous backgrounds like being fishermen. He met with all kinds of people. He was willing to meet with rich, poor, those who were considered to be the moral guardians of society, and then he was also very willing to meet with those who were immoral and had poor reputations. For example, he was willing to meet with the prostitutes and tax collectors who were known for lying and stealing, people whom society looked at and said, you're the sinner's He had pity on people who were sick, some with highly contagious diseases like leprosy. He was willing to meet with them and he had pity on those who were pushed off to the edge of society. He mingled with them. He had no real amount of wealth. In fact, he didn't even have a home to claim as his own. There were no monuments, no buildings named after him. And towards the end of his life, he gathered his 12 followers together, and instead of them serving him by rinsing the mud off of his feet, he took a towel, knelt down, and washed their feet, referring to himself as a servant. That night, Jesus was arrested by soldiers, and the crowds that had followed him, thousands of people that had come to appreciate him, they turned on him, they hated him, and eventually they endorsed his crucifixion on a cross. Of the many people who followed him, uh, yeah, they abandoned him, his closest disciples walked away, even denied him, and even after his final words on earth, the Bible says that of all of these people who had come to hear him preach and teach, there were only 120 who were still gathered together and their gathering is pretty weak in terms of its appearance as they were locking themselves in a room because they were fearful that they could be killed as well. So here's Jesus, not very impressive by human standards, yet for all these things that are true about Jesus, these things that I just mentioned, Mark says that he is the most important person of all time. Every person who has ever lived has an eternity, an eternal soul. And every person's eternity hinges on how he or she will respond to Jesus. Now, I don't have much connection to important people in the world You mentioned the person Vladimir Putin, and all I'm hoping is that he doesn't invade Ukraine and kind of throw our world into a tumbling machine. If I say Tom Brady, I really don't have much connection to him. I just kind of hope that he'll come back another season and the retirement rumors aren't true. If I say Tom Holland, Spider-Man, come on. I'm like, fictional figure, you know, good actor, Some people respond to these individuals, but we really have no connection. When we say the name Jesus, what is your response to him? This morning, you look at those people on Time magazine, you look at those others that I've just mentioned. You have an internal response, and sometimes it's a response of admiration. Sometimes it's a response of hope. Sometimes it's just a response of indifference. But when you hear the name Jesus, or as you have claimed to be one of his followers, what would you say your response is to him? How do you respond to Jesus? Well, as we study Mark, we're going to see that a response is required from every person. There's a little background information that I'll give you on the book of Mark, and I'm just going to move through this quickly. Uh, first off, we believe that Mark relied on Peter for much of his material. This author, his name Mark, it's, n- it's not given in the book. Um, church history tells us that Mark was the author, specifically. Church history leans towards saying it was John Mark, and John Mark spent a little bit of time with Peter, as we see in the book of Acts. Church history also refers to this author as being nicknamed Stumpfinger. Interesting fact. He must have cut his finger off, something like that, and uh, people referred to him as Stumpfinger. So all of you who are missing some of your finger, you've got a friend in Mark here. His audience is thought to be Gentile Christians in Rome. Um, There might be some correlations or hints in the book that come up about that. Otherwise, we're leaning into church history for that. But the purpose, perhaps the most important part of the background information here, the, the pinpointed purpose of Mark is not clearly stated in the book some books in the bible have a clear opening or closing statement so for example the gospel of luke luke says i've compiled these things for you most excellent theophilus that you might have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught so we know that luke's purpose in writing luke and acts was to serve this man named theophilus because he had heard things he had been taught things and so he puts together an orderly compilation of Jesus's life and then the early church. That's his purpose. Or you have the Apostle John who closes up his book and he says, these things were written to you so that you might believe. So he wrote his book so that people could come along and say, yes, I believe. But Mark doesn't have that lasered in focus or purpose statement. However, most agree that after reading, studying the book, Mark is simply writing for the purpose of explaining who Jesus is, and that's where the book really begins, who Jesus is. Now, there are five portions to the sermon as we go through verse 13 this morning, and I'll give you these five portions now. There is, number one, the assertion The assertion, number two, is the announcement. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on points one and two, the assertion and the announcement. Point number three is the anointing. Point number four is the approval. And point number five is the adversary. Now, I'm not smart enough to come up with five points starting with A. I got four out of five from commentaries. I came up with one of those. I won't tell you which one, but they all begin with A the assertion, the announcement, the anointing, the approval, and the adversary. Okay, so let's get into the assertion. Point number one what is an assertion? It is a statement of belief. It is a statement that is true here. And in verse 1, Mark throws down his assertion. This is the statement. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Who is Jesus? John, or Mark, what is your assertion here? And he says this, that Jesus is two things, the Christ and the Son of God. We're going to take a moment to look at those two titles there. Christ is a title. It's not a name. We oftentimes say Christ, and it can kind of come to be a name for us, but it is actually a title. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. It comes from the Old Testament word for Messiah. So when you see the term Christ in the New Testament... Wherever you see Messiah or anointed one in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, Christ is the synonymous term with that. So who were Messiahs? Who were the anointed ones? Messiahs were usually anointed by oil. You have kings like David. You remember when Samuel came to David and anointed him with oil? There were prophets like Elisha. There were priests like Aaron, they were anointed. And why were they anointed? What was this special ceremony where a prophet would come and anoint a king with oil on his head? The purpose of this anointing was to show that this individual had been uniquely set aside by the Lord. So anytime you saw an anointed one or a Messiah, this individual is set aside by the Lord for a task and oftentimes those tasks were for the purpose of delivering or protecting God's people. Whether it was a king like David who would be assigned to protect God's people. Or even a priest who would serve in a, in a religious sense and offer up sacrifices and protect God's people. This is what the anointed ones were doing. And now the Old Testament is filled with promises or prophecies about a particular coming Messiah, one who would be clearly set aside in a unique way for a unique task. One passage is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed, or Messiahed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now you know that that passage appears again in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus says that passage in Isaiah 61 is me. He says that about himself. He is the anointed one. So someday reading Isaiah's language, reading in Isaiah's time... Someday a Messiah would come to minister to his people and deliver them from their enemies. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that was pointing to me. And so Mark's assertion here in verse 1 is that Jesus is this ultimate Messiah. He is the one who came to deliver. But the deliverance was not the kind of deliverance that people were expecting. The Jews are under the tyranny of Rome Um, Rome has taken over Israel. And so the Jews, looking back to their Old Testament Israel history, say, we saw kings that would come in and defeat the enemies. They'd cast off the Philistines or they'd get us out of exile. We want a Messiah who is going to come and who is going to physically deliver us like that. Well, their expectations were actually set too low. Because this Messiah was coming to deliver them from a greater need. There is a greater enemy gripping God's people. It's a spiritual enemy. And we see this throughout the Gospel of Mark. Here comes Christ, the Messiah, for the purpose of deliverance. Deliverance from what? Deliverance from a spiritual enemy. And you see this starting to unfold right away in chapter 1. So you got your Bibles open. Look over at chapter 1, verse 23. And immediately there was in their their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, demonic in nature. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, be silent and come out of him in the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And so here you see Jesus, the Messiah, coming. And here you see the first sort of deliverance, the first picture of deliverance starting to happen, where Jesus is prying off the grips of the spiritual realm on people. And then in chapter two, uh, we'll get to this in several weeks. Jesus is teaching in a house. All of a sudden, there's noise up above him. And the roof starts to open up and they let a man come down on a cot and we see that he's a paralytic man. He can't move. And so Jesus sees that he's got a health issue. But you remember, what does Jesus do first? How does he deliver him first? His deliverance is statement number one, I see your faith, your sins are forgiven. And over and over again, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we're seeing that Jesus' role as a Messiah, as a deliverer, is going to be something much greater than circumstantial. It's going to be spiritual in nature. We have to be delivered from our sins. Now, any good Messiah, though, is going to lead his people in victory. And in the end, you better see that Messiah standing. But Jesus' messiahship would take on a different role. Christ's messiahship would not be successful by Jesus saving himself. In fact, Jesus, if he would have saved himself, he would have failed in his role as a messiah to secure us from our sins. And so Mark is pulling this along, and that's where we see Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And those closing chapters in Mark are going to show us how the Messiah comes, and the way that he delivers us from our sins is by laying his own life down on our behalf. So in Mark, Jesus is the ultimate Messiah, he is your Messiah. And one of the things that I just want us to be pondering, especially if you're a non-Christian this morning, is this. Are you responding to Jesus as the Messiah? Do you realize that Jesus has come to deliver, to deliver you from your sins, and without his deliverance, you have no salvation? And the way that we experience this deliverance is not by works, but simply by laying hold of him in faith. Have you believed in him as the Messiah? All right, Mark's assertion continues. He's not only the Messiah, he's also the Son of God. Special people were anointed in the Old Testament. Like I said, they had a Messiah role, But there is only one person who can legitimately be called the Son of God. This title means that Jesus, Jesus is God here on earth. And I think that as Christians, we come and study the Bible and we say, yeah, I understand that. I, I hear that. He is God. And then we're on to the next thing. I think it's good for us to meditate on this. Um, let me just maybe share a thought to help us think through this. If a guy walks in the back door and he's got a red, white, and blue shirt on, and he walks up the aisle and sits down and you go over to him and you say, Hi, my name is whatever. What's your name? Well, I'm Captain America. You would sigh and maybe look for me and say, hey, we got an issue over here. Um, Captain America. You might have pity on him. Because you know Captain America is a superhero comic figure that is sort of rooted in history, World War II, we need somebody to sort of bolster our enthusiasm, Captain America, we can get behind him, kind of thing. And you're thinking, this guy kind of missed Halloween by a few months, or we need some help here. He can't be that because we are humans. And we know that this is just entertainment over here. It's in the fictional realm to be more than just human. Jesus comes in. He sits down. Hi, my name is so-and-so. It's your name. I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. If we follow our line of thinking that Captain America can't exist because that's more than human... Our our thinking ordinarily would go, then, does Jesus fall in the same category? There can't be superheroes. There can't be, because they're not human. But you and I have to come to this person, Jesus who is 100% human, but he is the son of God, meaning he has deity. Just like my sons have burkholds going through their vein, the son of God has God going in him. And Jesus comes in and he says, I'm God. And again, we're like, yeah, I know that from the Bible. On to the next thing. But we should actually be a little jolted by this truth that here is somebody who is not just one of us in like an ordinary sense this is the son of God that's Mark's assertion God the creator has come down he's zipped himself up in human flesh he's become like one of us and for the original audience or for those whom Jesus met this was like you're crazy superhero language we can't believe this guy in fact If he claims to be this way, that's an absolute lie, a lie that is detrimental to society, and he needs to be put to death. That's how Mark sort of unfolds here with those who hear this news that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus is utterly unique? He's the Son of God. So as Mark unfolds, it's interesting how this sonship, his divine nature is is acknowledged at his baptism, which we'll see here, there's a voice from heaven who says, This is my beloved son. The demons, the unclean spirits, as I marked or uh, just noted here earlier, they, they say, You, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Amount of Transfiguration, God speaks and he says, This is my son. It's not until we get to the very end of the gospel of Mark that the first human says truly this was the son of God and it's the centurion soldier at the foot of the cross having watched Jesus die that now agrees with Mark's assertion at the beginning. This is the son of God and so Andy and Luke and I were talking about the sermon and talking about just overviews of the book. And they brought up this point that if, if you kind of want to break down the book into two sections, you could go with chapters 1 through 8. What happens at the end of chapter 8? Christ turns to Peter and he says, Who do you say that I am? Like, what's your assertion about me? And you remember what? Well, the crowd say, you know, you're John the Baptist, you're this and that. No, No, who do you say that I am? and he says, you are the Christ. Okay, part one of the assertion, got it. But he missed the second part. He didn't say you're the Son of God. There's more to know about who Jesus is, and it's not until you come to the end or towards the end of Mark where we find part two, this section, where the centurion says, ah, you are truly the Son of God. So this is Mark's assertion. Jesus is truly is the prophesied Messiah, the deliverer who is coming, and he is truly the Son of God. Now, Mark moves on. In order to help us appreciate this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark takes us back several hundred years, specifically to an announcement in the Old Testament. He says in verse 1, he says, I want to give you a beginning of the gospel. And He's not declaring this is when it all started. He's just saying, here's a launching pad. Here's the beginning that we'll start with. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it goes all the way back to Isaiah. So point number two, we're into the announcement now. and We're going to look at verses two through eight. There's a history that comes before Jesus here, before his arrival here on earth. In verse two, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so um, Mark leans into Isaiah here and he actually leans into Exodus and Malachi. He just doesn't quote them or he doesn't list them. There are quotations taken from those prophets there. And what Mark is doing here is he's drawing our mind back to promises from the Old Testament that have color and meaning that are supposed to provide like this accent around who Jesus is that point to him. So I want you to take your Bibles. It's a longer passage. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 40 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 40, because let's see what Mark is referring to here in Isaiah 40. He uses two verses But those verses are meant to come with meaning. So we'll come back to Mark 1 in just a minute. To help you understand this, let me see if I can explain it this way. Mark uses a little phrase from Isaiah chapter 40. So let me use a little phrase. Um, When we've been there 10,000 years... Okay, there's a little phrase. I just gave you seven words. There, when we've been there ten thousand years, most of you in this room have heard those seven words. Um, I don't need to say much, but you know that there's more meaning around those seven words. It comes from a song. It comes from the song "Amazing Grace." It comes from the song "Amazing Grace," written by John Newton. It's describing the ten thousand years that we will just have begun in the new heavens and the new earth. And he goes on to talk about eternal life. But I've just said seven words, and now all of a sudden, those seven words give you a big meaning. This is what Mark is doing by just giving those two verses. But there's a bigger meaning, and we need to go back to Isaiah to see what this bigger meaning is that he's looking at. So let me just look at Isaiah chapter 40. Notice the first two words in verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 3, here's the familiar language. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And you'll notice in your Bible that Lord is all caps there, referring to Yahweh, God. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places will be like a plain. The ground is smoothing out. Make straight a highway for our God so he can walk forward. Verse 5, and then the glory of the Lord Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, well, what shall I cry? Cry, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What God says is true. Now go up onto the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now you can see from this language here that it is a message of hope. A messenger would come. A messenger is going to come and he's going to cry out to people to prepare a way. To prepare a way for the Lord to come. And Isaiah is saying, be comforted by all of this. Be comforted by this truth that that God is coming and, and he is going to be present with his people. And Mark is saying that passage in Isaiah chapter 40, the significance of it, bring it forward and now just lay it down and enjoy the big meaning of it that it is fulfilled in Christ. That time that Isaiah is talking about is now here. And John, who we'll get to in just a moment, he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He's the one who was prophesied who would go before Jesus and in a sense say, let's make a path for him to walk on. And will you join him? Will you come and follow him? A couple of things that just come to mind as we look at Isaiah chapter 40, some effects that, should be on our lives. The first effect is that you have to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked together. So there is a bad trend happening in many wishy-washy churches where you'll hear language like unhitch your Old Testament from your New Testament. That was kind of common out there a couple years ago. Other things that are taking place are We can't really trust the Old Testament because that's the God of gore and the God of anger and the God of wrath, and he's always pouring out all this ugliness all the time. Well, if you just say, I'm going to believe the New Testament, the New Testament is saying we believe the Old Testament. In fact, here's the Old Testament, and it is right here being fulfilled in Jesus Christ here for us, so... This has an effect where we read Mark and we read Isaiah and we say, yes, this is God's story that he's putting together. The second effect is that as we read the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament and then see how the writers of the New Testament say it's happening here, it's happening here, it's happening here, we actually have heightened language where we appreciate more and more who Jesus is. So we read Isaiah and we can say, yes, that call to comfort from Isaiah is a passage that is for us. It's because Mark is saying, this is Jesus here. Comfort, comfort my people. Here is the one who is going to take care of his lambs and shepherd them. So it leaves an effect on our lives. Now, back to Mark chapter 1, we see Isaiah coming to fulfillment in this time. And here comes John the Baptist. He's the announcer here. So we'll move through this Quite quickly now. John moves, or Mark moves quickly, by the way. We'll move quickly with him now. Uh, in verse 4, John appeared, and we see his location. He's baptizing in the wilderness. Uh, this was his sort of his pulpit, his place where he preached. And it's interesting, he's not in Jerusalem, he's not at the temple, he's not in the synagogues, he's in the wilderness here. The text says that. Lots of people, crowds were going out to see him. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to see him. Skip down to verse six. We see his appearance. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. John was not flashy by any means. Um, Camel hair, not the most appealing and eating locusts and honey. If you have decided to watch the series The Chosen. This is Creepy John who comes here. They refer to him as Creepy John. Now, just a word about The Chosen. If you watch it, it's entertainment. Uh, Watch it with discernment because oftentimes what we see visually can passively become authoritative in our thinking. So you just have to watch that with discernment. The only authority on Christ is right here. And so we lean into this as our authority. So John, creepy John, whatever you want to call him, John the Baptist, he's not flashy by any means. His message is in verse 4, he's got a message of repentance. So he's inviting people to be baptized, and we talked about this last week. Baptism says, I agree with that message. What's his message? It's a message of repentance. Away from ourselves and to Jesus. So you go down to verses 7 and 8. It says that he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. So here's the assertion. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And John is saying, or Mark, John the Baptist is saying, he's coming and he is so worthy that I don't even deserve to untie his shoes. And John or yeah, John the Baptist keeps pointing people to him. Look at Jesus. Repent of where you've been, look at Jesus. And so by explaining this or sharing this, Mark is again asking us, How are you responding? Do you fall in line with John the Baptizer's message? Now, to deepen our appreciation Jesus of Jesus, Mark gives more support that he is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. Verses 9 and 10, this is part 3, the anointing. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We talked about this last week. Jesus agreed with the message of repentance. And Mark's reason for including this baptism develops here by what takes place next. In verse 10, it says, when he came up, Jesus, out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And so here is this anointing that now takes place where as oil was poured out on those individuals who were set apart, here is More than oil, here is the Spirit of God coming down upon Jesus, the Son, and setting him aside for ministry. We'll move on to section four the approval. Here's a voice from heaven that says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here is God speaking. And saying that you are my son, you are my beloved son. And as I'm studying it this week, the commentators say that there are echoes here that go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac. As we saw Abraham looking at Isaac and saying, this is my son, this is the son whom I love. I can't give him, I don't want to give him up, but I will. Here is the Father in heaven with this eternal relationship with the Son and the Son's relationship with the Father. is saying, you are the Son. You are the Son whom I love. And he goes on to say, not only are you the Son whom I love, but you are the Son with whom I am well pleased. It's language, again, that has echoes back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 and 3. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. And what will he do? He will bring forth justice to the nations. He'll be a great deliverer. Look at this. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. He won't be a shouter, a tyrant in that sense. Look at how gentle he will be, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will care for his people. And so here is the Father saying, he's here, folks. He's here. The Messiah is here now. We move on. Mark moves on quickly. You you remember the other Gospels, they have details here. Mark moves on quickly in verses 12 and 13 to the adversary, and he only takes two verses to recount Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. The other Gospels have a long, drawn-out paragraph. It simply says here in verse 12 that, The Spirit immediately drove him out or pressed him out or pushed him out into the wilderness. The Spirit is leading him now into the wilderness. The Spirit of God. And so we know that if the Spirit is doing this, that this is ordained by God. This is a trial for Jesus. And so for 40 days, he's going to be in this wilderness facing the temptation of Satan. But Jesus endured. And one of the traits that we admire in people is that if they have faced adversity and they endure, we say yes to them. We say, yes, we admire you. We can see strength in you. And so here is Jesus for 40 days out in the wilderness, not eating, with the wild beasts, being tempted to just follow Satan in one area. And if he follows Satan in one area, the whole Messiahship is done. But he didn't. He endured all the way through. And it says that the angels of God were ministering to him there. God would not leave his beloved son, the son in whom he delighted alone. He attended to his son with angels. He ministered to them. Hebrews 14 says, are not angels sent out to minister to us as well? Here's Jesus having defeated the adversary. And then Mark is done. That's it. He's finished. No lines from Scripture there that we see in the other Gospels. He just wants us to know Jesus won. He defeated Satan. And as we go through Mark, we'll see more rounds with Satan. This was round one. Boom, Jesus wins. We'll see another round next week. Boom, Jesus wins. And on and on, Jesus just keeps hammering Satan over and over again. All Satan needs is one victory But Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, continues to win. And that leaves us asking this question that we started with. How do you respond to Jesus? This is the Messiah, the Deliverer. This is the Son of God. How do you respond to Jesus? Do you believe this claim that Jesus is the true deliverer? Do you believe it from the bottom of your heart? And you're saying, yes, I hear it. I hear what you're saying, but I'm wrestling with this whole thing about what you mentioned earlier with superheroes and Jesus. Like, just as you said Captain America isn't true, I have a hard time believing that this historical figure Jesus is more than just human like more special and Mark is saying okay follow along with me jump on board with me we're going to go through a long study and you're going to see that this is just no ordinary person he is the Messiah who proves himself over and over capable of delivering and he is the son of God in the flesh we will come to this place or we must come to this place where we believe this as truth. We must believe it as truth because it's God's word. And it becomes a bedrock for our lives that all of the things that are going on in the world that are upside down, whether it's Russia invading Ukraine or what's happening in Washington, D.C. or how we're going to be delivered from the next crisis. All of these things begin to sort of take their place at a lower level because we see a greater enemy that's against us going through the gospel of Mark, and we see that there's only one person who could deliver us from that enemy. That's Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you believe this about Jesus? It kind of puts all of these things in perspective saying, okay, these things, God will take care of that. He's sovereign. He's over all of that. But my eternity hinges on whether or not I believe Jesus can deliver me from my sins. Do you believe that? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? If he is, it leads us to one other thought here. Simply close with this. John the baptizer was coming and saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And as John was declaring this, he's saying, I want a path forward for the Lord to go. Like I want him to be front and center in my lives. But John wasn't saying it's just going to be Jesus walking down a path and we get to observe John's message is a message of repentance. Now, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God who has this path and he's going forward now. The obvious question is, am I repenting and following on this path? Or is it just a nice truth that I can acknowledge it and I can even say I believe it that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he's got a path to walk, but I'm not called to that path? Total disconnect here. John would say, if you believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, join him on that path. Repent of your sins and follow him. And so this week, as we just walk away from verses 1 through 13, I hope that you can walk away with comfort, comfort my people, the Messiah has come, and also this Messiah who's come, who's walking his path. Yes, okay, I'm repenting of where I've been and walking again, following him down that path as a follower of him. Let's pray.